Any questions? No, good. You guys are media ready. Always. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, at, look, look at Cam's hair. I wish you guys could see my hair because it's the only hair on this podcast that's better than Cam's right now. <laughs> so, Connor, I think when you, you're ready, we're ready. So go right ahead. What about the, the, the title of the show? title of the show is Top Gun. How about that? It's pretty good. It's the first time we've come up with a title be- like uh, within like a week of actually recording the show, which is awesome for us. I had a different one, but Go ahead. We'll do you're the one who came up with Top Gun. Yeah, we'll, we'll do Top Gun. All right. Bill, n- now's the part when you go quiet. Okay, sorry. Hey there, Squash fans, and thanks for coming back to another episode of The Breakdown with myself, Connor Malley, and my co-host, Bill Buckingham. We've got another great episode for you today. And we're joined by some heavy hitters. We're talking about John White and Cameron Peely, both Australians, both living in the United States, and both holding world records for hitting the ball the fastest. In this show, we dive into game changers, meaning who and what has changed the game the most in the world, and then for the sport of squash. In the Impedinix, we give you another segment with Paul Johnson of Putting on Your PJs, It's Story Time. PJ shares the first time he met John White on tour. A quick thank you again to our sponsor, Baya Sports. They are both Bill and mine's favorite squash shoe ever because they feel great and they look great. So go to BayaSports.us and check out their newest Force X. That's B-I-A Sports.us. Thank you again for tuning in and we hope you enjoy the show. What about this? This call is being recorded. All right. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to another episode of The Breakdown with my co-host, Bill Buckingham. Welcome back, Bill. Connor, excellent to be here and only a little bit of a lag. Seven days between shows, which is a record for us. Appendicitis felled you. General life has felled you, which we won't get into. Anything going on in your life that's preventing you from doing this right now? Or are we going to go all the way through this show without you pulling the plug? I was a little bit nervous because the guest we have coming on today was scheduled a little while ago and I had emergency surgery. So I was a little bit nervous that something else might happen with this guest. So at least I don't think he's a jinx. We're excited to have him back on. Before we get into that, Bill, what episode is this? This is episode 15, Connor. We've made it to 15. Are you feeling okay? That's all I really want to know. You look good. You look much better. Thanks, man. I'm doing okay. Your hair bun is solid. Well done. (laughs) I got a haircut and I'm, I'm going to get it cut again. But So I'm super excited for today's episode and we're going to talk about game changers. And obviously in our ratings and rankings sections, we're going to talk about the global impact of what we've seen in our lifetime, but then also get into the sport of squash and what are those big game changers we've seen. And we figured this is a pretty challenging topic. And so we're like, gosh, we're going to need some top guns for this. And we're like, Bill, who are some top guns we know? We knew a bunch, but none of them could come on the show. So instead, we have here, live from New York and live from Philadelphia, we have first Cameron Pilly, former number 11 ranked player in the world, formerly from Australia, now residing, Cam, and correct me if I'm wrong, in the metro New York region in the Greenwich area, and is the head of uh, director of junior squash at the Apoamis Club. And joining him, another Australian, again, Australia being the theme here, former world number one, currently residing in Philadelphia, where he is the head coach of both the men's and women's squash team at Drexel University, John White. Welcome, John. Woo! Pleasure to be here. Awesome. Wow. wow this is awesome. It, uh, two Australians. So so before we get into the ratings and rankings and game changers and things such as that, there's just a, a little contention between you two. I know you're, you're 
fellow countrymen. You have a history together. You, you do know each other well, we know. You're the first people we've had on who have formerly and currently held world records. Connor, do you want to broach this or this is uncomfortable for me? I don't know if it's uncomfortable for them. And I can see John is chomping at the bit to talk about this because I'm sure there'll be some issues with like the recording devices and things such as that and how the records came about. But back in Philadelphia, and I believe it was 2011, if I'm not mistaken, John White, you struck a squash ball that was recorded at 172 miles an hour. That was the world record and held on uh, being the world record until the young man that I'm looking to my right, your junior fellow Aussie. Cameron struck a ball at 175 miles an hour to break your record. A record that really, I mean, all, all the stuff that you did, John, you were sure you were the world number one. You may, may have won a few titles back when nobody watched squash. So like, but the big thing, the big thing you were known for was you were the world record holder of hitting the hardest squash ball. Then this young man came up and took your record. Uh, just thoughts on this from both of you. First, John, thoughts on one I've never held a world record, but then again, I've never lost a world record. So, <laughs> well, to hold a, re a world record is pretty good achievement, right? So, you know, to have it and you get recognised everywhere you go, people come and ask you, "Can you hit a ball for me? Can you do this? How do you hit it so hard?" And then you get some young whippersnapper by the name of Cam Pilly coming up and he throws the ball up and he, he hits it a little bit faster. But I must say, and I will say for the record, he does hold the record for the forehand hardest hit. He does have a weak backhand, <laughs> backhand that the record was held. And I think that we both hold a record here. I'll give it up to him as the hardest hitter, yes, but I will say to this day that I do hold the world record for the backhand because he's a little bit of a Sally on the backhand. <laughs> and my forehand is not as strong as Cam Pilly's, but, I, you know, he's busted a watermelon and he's <laughs> – <laughs> and busted my brother's back. Oh, my God. I forgot about that. Oh, yes, you did. Holy crap. Yeah, and he rearranged his brother's back. I think that's spot on, though. I think I do not think I would be able to take down the backhand world record. Because what was it? I think it was 1-7. It was the same, right? I think you got about the same. Or Almost the same on the foot, on, on my backhand as your forehand. Oh, wow. I think you were 176. I got 175. Yeah, nah. Yeah. I could only go by what Wikipedia says. So Wikipedia does not mention the forehand backhand. And Wikipedia does about as extensive a research into things like this as anyone. So I'm not sure we could talk about the forehand backhand as being a thing. But if you want to go with that, John, that's absolutely fine. <laughs> I think it's fair. It's totally oh. fair. I didn't even think about that. I'm going with that, buddy. You know, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm 48 and I still have the hardest hit backhand. But you know, no, I'm sticking okay. to my story. And okay. <laughs> right. This is my story. I'm sticking to it. Right, right. It was pre-steroid era or something like that. Like Babe Ruth talking about Barry Bonds. I mean, yeah, no, it's fair though. It's great. It's great. So along those lines, though, to what Cameron just mentioned was you did create a viral video essentially way back when of you striking your brother with the ball. You know, collectively, I've seen it. It's it, on your channel. It's like, close to 700,000 downloads. I think I've seen variations of it. So it's north of a million. <laughs> like, A, how's your brother's back? And then B, what's been like having a viral video? He's fine. He's fine. <laughs> it was weird. Like, we were just heading down to the local squash club for a training session because, you know, he was a decent squash player. And then we're sitting there having a coffee and he's, he's come up with this brilliant idea of me drilling him in the back as hard as I could. I was like, easy. I'm like, are you serious? He's like, yeah, 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 let's, you know, let's do it. Like, it'd be funny. I'm like, yeah, that's going to be hilarious. So then we've done it, and our coach came into the club like half an hour later. Why do you know Carl, Carl Koenig yeah. over in Holland? Yeah. Like, yeah. He's, come, 
<laughs> he's come in and we showed him the footage and he thought it was fake. He's like, no, he's like, no, no. My, we literally did it like 20 minutes ago. He's like, no, 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 no. So then my brother took his shirt off and showed him and he almost fainted. <laughs> I know. It like burned off the skin is what it looks like. Well, didn't, didn't they take it off of YouTube? Didn't YouTube ban it for a little while because it was too R-rated of what it Yeah, that's right. So we so uploaded it and I think within – like it kind of went viral within like 48 hours. So – all of a sudden, I've been slapped with an age restriction video, so you can't put ads on it. You can't do anything. And I'm like, oh, that's that's a bit harsh. It's just like, you know, a little sconning of the back. <laughs> with all the stuff Jackass does and things like that on TV, they, that, they cut that. They said yeah. that was, yeah. wow. Yeah. It's a bit harsh. A bit harsh. Um, that, that is very harsh. The good thing about it, or the, the kicker from that is, the following morning, my brother had a – a flight at like 6, 7 a.m. the next morning to Malaysia for a mountain bike race in the tropics. So he said it was the most uncomfortable flight of his life. He was basically arching his back to try and not let it touch the seat or he was leaning forward so it wouldn't touch the seat. Or the um, flight to Malaysia. Needless oh. to say, he didn't do too well in that event. <laughs> oh. Brutal. Oh. Brutal. Well, how long did the mark last for? Or is he still, does he still have a full mark? He had a scar for about five years. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, and it was kind of in the shape of a C as well. Perfect, Cameron. You actually showed the squash ball, and it had like a half moon shape from his skin, right? Was that, was that... Exactly half the ball made impact with his skin, and we could peel skin off the ball as well. Oh, oh my gosh. gosh. <laughs> I thought it was pretty funny. My parents didn't. So did you do the watermelon first or the or the brother first? Brother first, and then after that went viral, I went to a tournament in Canada, and they're like, oh, we've got a TV crew coming in tomorrow. Do you want to come in? Hardest hit thing, blah, blah, blah. So I rock up, and here's the journalist holding a watermelon. I'm like, oh, this, what's going on here? <laughs> That's where that sort of started, yeah. Did you say like, look, I have the strongest hit. I didn't say I have the accurate. Yeah, it was the smallest watermelon I've ever it seen. Was, it was tiny. Uh, it was tiny. My backhand would have gone straight through the middle. <laughs> it probably would have. John, John, have you ever done something similar that wasn't videoed on a person, hitting a person with a ball on purpose, such as that, Some a volunteer? Not what I've seen you do on court on purpose, I'm talking no, about. I believe you mean my brother would not have. He wouldn't. He didn't call me to say, "Come and hit me." And I wouldn't hit him either because I probably still wouldn't. I wouldn't be here if I hit my brother. <laughs> but no, nothing like that. Yeah, I, I held the record, and then it's like I never really come across of putting somebody in in front of it, or even thought about you know hitting a watermelon or or showing it an impact on something else as opposed to the front wall. You know, when, How I, about first, when I first got to Franklin Marshall College the sports information guy and our events coordinator, they came down and they put a camera and a sound bar against the front wall and I had to hit it. And they reckon this is just unbelievable, the sound that it makes. And even the guy who was holding the camera, he could feel the front wall may not have been built properly, but he could feel the vibrations from the front wall because he held the camera on the front wall going sideways to see if they can get the ball squished up against the front wall. Obviously they couldn't, but he, he, I hit it twice and then he goes, I'm not standing there anymore. <laughs> he then walked back to the back of the court. But I've seen enough. So that was my first year at Franklin Marshall College, yeah, but I didn't do anything else of trying to smack a watermelon or. Could they get the shot? 
That's no, they couldn't get a shot. No. Ah, uh, that would have been cool. That would have been awesome. Yeah, I think that's something. That's something we should. I don't know. With the technology we have now, that would be a shot that would be pretty awesome to see. We just find out just how squishy the ball gets how compressed right like yeah. I mean, they see i see it on golf videos they show the compression of a golf ball especially in the old days when they were using balada balls and things like that the compression was just incredible so it'd be amazing to see something that you that would show what a squash ball how it compresses when someone strikes it and when it strikes the front wall question for you john since you're a little bit older and played a little bit earlier on the tour than cameron before they recorded velocity of the balls and did stunts like that or things like that do you remember anybody who you might have played against in your early days who you think probably hit the ball faster than both of you guys was there anybody out there who was renowned for like really striking the ball like that yeah Popeye Brett Martin Brett Martin <laughs> oh, yeah that's where I you know it's it's like that's when I first got to the AIS in probably 1991 he was coming back and forth from the Gold Coast and he'd come down for some practice matches and all we would do was just try and smack the shit out of the ball and it was like we'd get it like almost you know twice the size of a squash ball it was like you know we we thought we could try and get it the same size as a racquetball but he was the same you know he absolutely launched in the ball with sort of little effort he was such a strong wristy player but he could he could generate so much power it would be interesting well who knows he could come close to record now at whatever the age is what 53 54 you know, I remember him playing the World Masters at UVA a few years ago. I went down to, to have a look at him and, and see him play. And in his first couple of rounds of his matches, he just patted the ball around, but he used one of the big head rackets that he used to carry. And then when he got to the quarters and semis when he played, I think Dominic Hughes and so on, he went back to the very, very small traditional head, and that's the one he loves to play, and he still whacked the ball so hard. It would be interesting. You know, if he's ever back over here or, you know, if, if Australian squash gets together, it'd be interesting to see what he can still do at that age because he, he, even just the, how effortless it was for him, he was one of the guys that just at that era was, every time he walked on the court, he, that's what was, he, he was renowned for. That would have been interesting to watch him play Dominic because Dominic does nothing but take the pace off the ball and lob it and all that, and Brett, Brett smashes the ball. So that would have been an interesting match. Uh, another question. So you guys both renowned for being the, you know, the hardest hitters in squash. Did you ever did that ever affect you on court where you're like, you know, I'm known as being like a guy who bashes the ball and kind of abandon your tactics and just start whacking it because that's what you do? And did it ever affect your game adversely because of that, because you had that reputation and thought maybe I need to live up to that reputation? I think a little bit when I first got the record, it was almost like, you know, I, I sort of try to change the pace, you know, and you're trying to pick the pace up every single time because you're trying to belt the ball. But you get players, you know, when you come along and you get the, you know, you're playing the likes of Pete Nichol, Dave Palmer, you know, you get all those guys who once they get used to that pace, then they use it against you. So then after like three or four years, you know, I've got to realize, okay, it gets tiring. <laughs> you know, if that ball keeps on coming back, the energy after a while, you know, going into the fourth and fifth fifth games, you use a lot of energy just to strike one ball. And if that ball is controlled back to you and just put back into, you know, either four corners and you're worked around, and then you've only got to miss hit a little bit, and then that cross court comes straight straight back in the middle of the court, that drive clips the side wall, it comes back to the middle of the court. You then going back to the you've got to start slowing the ball down. You've got to start realizing that okay, you've got to use the pace wisely and at a certain time that you know that you can actually get that ball through the middle of court and you're going to put the person under pressure as opposed to just hacking it 
Yeah, there, there was times in my career where you get to a point where things aren't going your way. I just tell myself to have a hack, and then I would just <laughs> the ball to the back of the ball, try and get the ball a little bit hot and a little extra bouncy where others can't control that way. And then all of a sudden, that ball is it's it's sort of you know coming off the side wall for you to do something with it. You know, but you've got to work it out as it goes on. But you know, when you get the hardest hit, it's like okay. I'm going to use this to my advantage and hit the ball as hard as I fucking can every single time. Work in the way. <laughs> How about you, Cam? Simple, actually. Yeah, like when when I first got it, I'd say for the next six to twelve months, you know, you, you walk on court and they introduce you and they say, "Oh, you know, Cameron Pilly, uh, hardest hit in the world, he's got the world record." And so, you know, you sort of hear that, and then I'm like, "Oh, geez, okay, I better I better smack a few balls here, sort of show them that I'm, you know, I'm not a fraud." <laughs> So I found, yeah, I found once if I got introduced and I heard it, I would sort of naturally hit a few harder. What he was saying, like, there was a stage where I was hitting it probably harder than I normally would have, but I found it really hard to get out of that during the match. So if I started hitting the ball a little bit harder, after one or two games, I found it hard to then revert back to how I should be playing. It was always, you know, it was easy to lift it, during the game but if i started with that hard fast pace like hitting it harder than i should i would like what he said it takes its toll and i'll sort of find it difficult to sort of slow it down and go back into my sort of my rhythm i guess right 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 did you find opponents were trying to whack it along with you like hey i could hit it just as hard as you if they did that i didn't mind that that was okay <laughs> you're gonna out hit them <laughs> who do you think would have the torch on the game on the tour today Mo Shabaggy, I would say at the moment. Yeah, he what's he, what's his nickname, the Beast. <laughs> he gives a, he gives a good whack. You can see when he changes the pace as well. It's like you know he's he's happy to be on some of the and the long rallies, and he slows the ball down. But then when he's in Beast mode, he just goes 100 miles an hour. To you know his movement picks up, and even when he's playing a boast, you know he's whacking that ball forward. You know, and then when he gets behind it with his drives and everything, he just he unleashes. You know, so at that point, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, he's probably the one that is the standout there with with the way he plays and the power that he gets on both sides. Yeah, he can be quite severe. Yeah, with that hitting. Yeah. 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 In terms of a one-off hit, I guess consistently as well, Omar Mossad. Oh yeah, yes. He's the only guy I've seen. Actually, it was in the Motor City Open. We're just having a practice hit, so I just finished my practice hit. And Omar and Tarek Moman went on for a hit. And Omar just got into like almost beast. Like he's just smashing the ball around. And he's hit this ball so hard that it's hit the front wall and it's like reverberated against the back of the ball to the front of the ball and it's just dropped down. It's like it only came back six feet off the front wall and he's drilled it as hard as he could. And I was like, I mean, I've started laughing. And then <laughs> I've walked on court and Tarek's like, oh, yeah, he does this all the time in Egypt. It's so annoying. I'm like, I'm, like, I'm like, wow, I've actually never seen that in my life. No, that that is absolutely crazy. I've never heard of that. I would have to say one off. I think, yeah, you hit it there, Pilly, with Mossad, yeah. yeah. Overall, consistency would be, I think, Mo, but one off. Yeah, Mossad hits it. I think you should actually call him up when he comes back in the States, buddy. I think you should be the one to take your shirt off and get him <laughs> see what it feels like. <laughs> I mean, a few people have suggested that. I'm like, nah, she's right. <laughs> so have either one of you hit someone in a match accidentally or you don't have to say not accidentally and put a mark on them that it was pretty severe during your playing days 
I wasn't one to go after people. You know, I, I did hit a few people on a reverse angle, you know, just sort of, uh, sorry, mate, just because I was <laughs> but, but no heat on it. Like there's a few times where it's like you you let it come off the back wall, they hit a high high cross court, and then it comes on the back wall and you just zing it past their leg, you know, but there was nothing. To- you look like a serial killer when you're telling that story, by the way, <laughs> like with your eyes looking up. <laughs> I wish our audience could see how you looked when you said that. You had a little smile on your face, like – yeah, a little zinger by his leg, and I yeah, just missed him. Yeah. But so. I think that's one of the benefits of people knowing that you can hit the ball hard. They they do clear a little bit more for you. Have you and Cam ever gone out on like tour, like have done exhibitions since since you've both been renowned for being the hardest hitters and like taking it on the road and saying, "Hey, we're going to do an exhibition at your club," that type of thing, and the two hardest hitters on court together. That would be. God, I mean, we should do cross court game exhibition. That's my backhand against your forehand. Bring it on, son. Oh, hey, that's that'll sell tickets. Right? <laughs> that'll sell tickets. So the 10% of the, the proceeds would go to the breakdown. So just FYI. So all good. We'll set that up. I think it would be compelling. I mean, there's a lot of exhibitions out there that are basically just the same players playing each other. And it does get a little tedious. I think you two on court together would sell some tickets. And I think it would be really cool to watch. I think we could do that. Are you still yeah. playing regularly, Cameron? All the time, mate. Oh, <laughs> <no. laughs> I'm on court all the time. We've got a few top juniors here that I have to, you know, put in. Not 100, percent but you know, yeah. I've got to, yeah. I've got to put in a bit. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I think he said that's a yes. I think that sounds like a yes to me. Connor, sound like a yes to you? It did. We should get this started after the summer. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, season opener. Season opener. Let's have a brainstorm. Yeah, yeah. Once we get off this call, let's. Uh, oh yeah, we'll, we'll organize it. Yeah. We'll <laughs> You guys have both been the biggest hitters in squash for the last, what, what is it, 1921? This started in like 2011. You haven't thought of doing this on your own. So I doubt you're going to take to the next step without some help. So, so if you want to loop me in, if you want this actually to happen, yeah, that buck squash or, you know, 203, blah, 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 blah. I'll give you my phone number. <laughs> it could be the challenge to prove who hits the ball the hardest. Oh, there we go. Exactly that. I mean, hey, Muhammad Ali came out of retirement, John. You could too, right? There's no age restrictions. Although... The way you staggered off court at the last qualifying at Drexel about three years ago, it looked more like walking into like the field of dreams, and you were like walking into the cornfield. I played Ali Farag, didn't I? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You looked yeah, a little. I tired. went seven love up in the first game, and then chat myself. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't do anything after that. <laughs> I was like, "Oh, this is awesome." He doesn't like my pace. Now he's controlling my pace. <laughs> now he likes that pace. <laughs> now exactly. I, now I can't control my heartbeat. I'm in trouble. <laughs> All right, Connor, are we ready to transition? Yeah, the first topic we're going to be talking about is game changers, but we're going to do it globally. So we'll go around the room and let's go with Cameron. What have you seen as the biggest game changers throughout your lifetime? So this is life, not squash specific. This is, yeah. life, this is life, Cameron. Life is squash, but this is actually your life outside the box, as we call it. Okay, so I have three things I've written down here. The first one is the internet, which... Basically, for me, the more specific parts of that would be online payments, banking, booking flights, booking hotels, renting cars, all of that baloney is just so convenient. You don't have to go to banks. You don't have to. I know here in this country, we always write checks, but normally you don't have to write checks if you're anywhere else. Just all of that stuff is just so convenient. And I think for me, that's just a game changer. Yeah, you do remember when that wasn't a thing, right? Yeah, I remember, um, and why you do, when we used to enter tournaments, enter PSA tournaments. Via and, fax. 
I remember sending faxes at like 2 a.m. in Australia because it's like the time zone difference. Then you've got to give them a call to make sure they actually got the fax. Absolute nightmare. It's really hard to believe anything actually happened. Like anything actually happened at all before the internet and before that. It's the travel thing's a huge, I didn't even think about travel. Like we used to book trips. My wife and I went like to Italy and England and we used like Rick Steves travel guide to like book our hotels and book our restaurants, like actual books. We went to Barnes and Noble and bought a book and booked our travel that way. I mean, unheard of, right? It came and that was only, I mean, it's like 12 years ago. <laughs> it wasn't that long ago. <laughs> Absolutely crazy. What else do you got? And then sort of tied into, I guess, technology is for me, wireless headphones, just Bluetooth headphones, which I'm wearing one with the wire, but I'd pull that out. Traveling with wireless headphones when I was on tour I was so into my headphones. I could have told you every single product on the market and how much that was going to cost. And like, noise canceling? Did you want noise canceling? Yeah. 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 Game changer. Yeah, for sure. Game changer. And my third one, probably a bit more serious than headphones, having kids. Oh, <laughs> that's a good one, Cam. That's a good one. <laughs> a bit of, a, bit of a shock to the system. And the reasons being, all of a sudden, it's like it's not just yourself and you got. You're basically booking tournaments and hotels and that. All of a sudden, you're looking after another human. And it's basically, it's scary to think that, you know, your wife just had a kid. It's an absolute clean slate. They know nothing. And you are responsible for shaping them as they are. And I was like, oh, well, this is a bit of a responsibility here. Just that whole side of things, which obviously playing on tour, it's, it's it's almost a very selfish sort of lifestyle, I guess. You're just looking out for yourself. All of a sudden, having kids, it's just like, well, you know, playing tournaments and playing squash is still very important, but all of a sudden, it's it's not the priority. Connor, I'm going to go next because one of mine is almost the complete antithesis of Cameron, so I, I want to get it in there. So we'll go. I only have a couple, so I'm only going to give you two. So to me, in, in my lifetime, this this and it's technology also was the cell phone. I grew up in a world with no cell phones, and then they were introduced, and they were called car phones. Like nobody called it a cell phone. It was a car phone and it was ultra expensive. It was huge. It cost a fortune to make a call from your car. But then those became ubiquitous and everyone has a cell phone. And just, I don't use my cell phone. I'm an older guy. So I, I use my cell phone only when absolutely necessary. As most people will tell you who know, my, know me, I never answer it when people call me. Much to Connor's chagrin is he, when he calls me and I never literally answer it. I use it to meet people places. So if we're going to go out to a restaurant or to a Yankee Stadium, to a game or somewhere, I can't imagine how people used to meet at places like at crowded stadiums and things like that before cell phones. Like how did you like go to a, like a 60,000 person concert at a stadium and say, Hey, I'll meet you there at seven. And you actually met each other. I, don't, I still don't remember how we did it. And I use cell phones for that more than anything. So the advent of the cell phone to me was the biggest game changer in my life. And I always swore that I would never get one when they first started coming out. And then I broke down and I do have one and I'm not quite sure I could live without it. It's almost strictly for meeting people, places, and looking at Twitter. It's really the two things I use it for. Bill does hold the distinction, though, when we were working at US Squash together, the first one to get an iPhone. So Yeah, yeah I was the first one to get an iPhone. First one also to get a Twitter account, remember? You, well, so, so in the office, I was thought of as the Luddite that didn't know anything about technology because everybody else I worked with was like 12, and they all grew up on this kind of stuff, and I did not. So like there was always all kinds of bets. I think I won a $100 gift certificate for opening up a Twitter account because they didn't think I could do it. A lot of doubters out there. Conversely to what Cameron said, the biggest invention in my lifetime that has affected my life the most was the invention and the widespread use of the birth control pill. 
<laughs> game changer, game changer. Yeah, definite game changer. And I thought of, I was like thinking about like things like invented. It was widespread use starting in 1964. And I was born in 1963. So there's a really good chance that if it came out a year earlier, I would not be on talking to you guys right now, would be my guess anyways. I'm one of eight kids. So I'm thinking, and I was number six. So I'm thinking if the pill is available, I'm thinking after after five like my mother probably would have took it or started taking it. And <laughs> I would say that that I would not be here right now. There's a really good chance. And secondly, obviously, I don't have kids. And this is no offense, Cameron. I'm sure it's the most wonderful thing in the world, but I cannot imagine having a kid. I mean, my wife my wife and I live, live such a selfish, selfish existence. And like <laughs> our life is like besides the usual stuff you deal with is an amusement park. And that amusement park would have big time rain days on it if we had kids involved. The birth control pill, it's a weird one, but shout out to Greg Pincus and John Rock, who invented the birth control pill. <laughs> a little, little dropping a little knowledge you know for you fans out there. Yeah, I'll, I'll believe, I have their poster above my bed. <laughs> Love it. I'm sure you do. <laughs> I got two. Well, two. One together was the internet and the phones, and also, as Billy said, family, like kids. I remember when, when I first got the AIS, we had to go down to the local flight center, and we have to sit. We had to sit there and just let them know where we wanted to go and then they would search while you were there on their like Commodore 64 or their, their box, right? And they're telling you which direction you can go or what flight you can get, what cost there is, what the, what the layover is, everything. You sit there for like a couple of hours. I still remember doing that exact same thing. The flight center, then all of a sudden it's like, you know, with everything, even when you're booking hotels or you're traveling somewhere, it's like it takes forever. And then when you travel, like now, it's like, you know, even with the phones, it's like you can do everything on your phone. You don't need to leave the house. You literally don't need to leave the house. Amazon is like, woohoo. If you want to book a flight, you can do it within two minutes. Literally do it in two minutes. You want to, and then it, they ask you if you want to hire a car, you want this and that. And it's just like I remember when I first started traveling, went to uh, Switzerland, stayed with the Donuts family for three months. I would call my parents from either a pay phone or, or their house phone every Sunday. That was it. That was the only contact I had. There was no, I didn't have travel with a cell phone, didn't do anything every Sunday. And if I missed it, it'd be the next Sunday. But now with the cell phones, it's like if somebody wants to call you, it's like they call you, they miss a call. They text you. If you don't answer back, they'll WhatsApp you. Then they'll try and contact you through Messenger. It's like you can be contacted whenever you want. But you can also do the same thing. When I was traveling, it's like, okay, I'll see you next month. No hesitation. Oh, I'll just see you next month. Nothing more. Now it's like, you know, like, with the phone with my kids, I text them, you know, they text me, they want an answer back within five minutes. And if they don't, they call me dad. Is everything okay? It's like, yeah, it's fine. Just <laughs> all good. Just chill out. Let's just chill out a little bit. They, but <laughs> because the technology and the internet is like, you want something done, you can get it done within five minutes, right? And then the biggest game changer for me was, you know, I had kids at the age of, what was I, 20, 20, just, just turned 25. When I Tyler, and then you know I had four kids under the age of five when I was uh, six when I was traveling. We were in Holland. It changes your whole lifestyle. It changes your thought process. It changes, you know, how you think about what you're doing. It changes what tournaments you're playing. You're looking after kids who or people who just cannot do anything for themselves, you know. And then we went for the third one, and then we had twins. It was like holy fuck! It was like you know. I only gave her one. She gave me two bats, you know. <laughs> two for one. Yeah. yeah. That also, you know, that opened my eyes about I could still travel the world, but it wasn't about me, myself, traveling the world and having a good old time here and there. It's like I finish a tournament, 
you know, I'd get on my phone, I'd get on the internet and change the price straight away. You know, back back when I was traveling, there were sometimes you'd travel to certain places and, you know, it took you a day just to change your flight. You couldn't do it straight away. So you were stuck there for a good two or three days until the next flight or you couldn't change your flight. You didn't have a change of flight. Now it's like, you know, anything's possible or you just cancel your flight and you're going to get on another flight within an hour. You can go to the airport and jump on a flight. You know, that I was, everything was, yeah, it was my career for being a squash professional, but second to that, or even even before that was, was family. You know, if I can get home an extra day early or started going to tournaments, maybe, you know, you know, a day too late, you know, staying that extra time at home just, just for the kids. And then, you know, you're always wondering, you know, what's happening, but it's, it's a complete game changer, you know, if you have four, but it's not a game changer. It's a horrible one. It's, it's something that's, it's exciting. You know, even now I've got two at Drexel, they graduate one more year and they both graduate, Tyler and Kira. And the other two are going into their final year in high school, grade 12, you know, but there's still a lot of shit that goes on. <laughs> it's not like, it's not like you change your diapers anymore or they're, they're starting to learn to walk. Then you're learning about the real life and you're like, okay, well, what, I, what was I doing at the age of 16, 17? It's like, you can't be doing that, boys, but it's like, ah, all right, there you go. Just let me, just let me call in the morning, you know, you know, text me, <laughs> two o'clock in the morning, text dad, I'm home. Okay, good. Great. Right. Right. And uh, the best thing is every time I call my parents, the dad goes, yeah, it's payback, son. That's <laughs> <laughs> what he says. You know, as long as they're okay, everyone's like, yep, yeah. He says, it's, it's payback, son. And all those times did you, you know, you'd come home late or, you know, back then there was no cell phones, right? I mean, I went away to college. I'd go there in September. I wouldn't come home till Christmas. And there's no, there, there was no phones. There was, like, we, we had a phone in our apartment, but like we, we didn't pay the bill for a month. So that got disconnected literally every year, a month into the school year. So there was no communication. There's a story that I was told by a friend of mine, his girlfriend at the time, his girlfriend's dad had passed away and she was trying to get a hold of her brother who was following the Grateful Dead. And this was back in the 70s. And he was traveling like the country with the dead, living in motels, living on buses. And they had to find him to tell him that his dad had passed away. And it took a day and a half only with no cell phones to, to track him down in a little motel in Nashville, Tennessee, through the Grateful Dead grapevine, as they call it, where they had people who were. And I'm wondering if there was versions of this in other aspects, like that you were able to track people down because you knew somebody or they knew somebody and you knew if you called this person, they'd call a payphone like on the street and somebody would pick it up and things such as that. Cause you have to find people, right? When things like that happen and to be able to find somebody in a day and a half in a little motel in Nashville, Tennessee, when they hadn't seen the person they said in like two years and they found him in a day and a half to tell him like, unfortunately that his dad passed away. So I think it was doable. I think there was just a little more ingenuity back then than there is now. Now we're kind of lazy. So we kind of just oh, pick up the cell phone or, you know, do whatever you want. And it's easy to track someone down. So not as easy to get away from people as it used to be. And the other thing that I thought about was during the pandemic, what would the pandemic have been like if we didn't have computers, if we didn't have cell phones, if there wasn't Zoom, if there wasn't anything like that, what would it have been like to be locked away in your houses for like a, a year and a half? We all survived. Here we are. Yeah. We're all survived. We all survived. That's for sure. What do you got, Connor? Yeah, I'll round this out with, there's a lot of stuff I nerd out about, but certainly technology is is one of them. And I'm going to lean a little bit more future looking. The early technologies are here. And so the blockchain, which is really just going to be what we consider like the new internet or internet 3.0. Back then, we know what internet is now. We've seen what mobile has done to provide us. And this blockchain technology is going to create stuff that we just don't even know how it's really going to work, but it's pretty amazing. 
if I had a camera that worked on my computer right now, you see me raising my hand. What's blockchain? So blockchain is basically going to enable everything. Like you've, you've heard of cryptocurrency or smart contracts or this kind of stuff. So blockchain is essentially the underpinning technology that will enable all that, right? So it's a ledger-based system that it does take currently high computing power in order to like process this stuff, but it allows individuals to connect versus having to use third-party verification. So if we wanted to, like even right now, if we want to use PayPal, to pay each other, we'd have to go through an entire system to get there versus just transferring directly. That cleared that up. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of cool stuff. Elon Musk, I think, has really almost, I think when we look back in time, like he he will have ushered in a lot of interesting waves, one of which being we're, we're looking at now the, the massive uh, adaptation of electronic vehicles. We've got GM, Ford, pretty much, you know, by 2040, the majority of cars will be EVs, electronic vehicles. So, and he's helped usher in the space exploration. So, I think uh, pretty amazing that that's one guy really lifting those. And then I was torn between quantum computing and artificial intelligence. So, you got too much time on your hands to be thinking about that. <laughs> <laughs> I like headphones. <laughs> yeah, I, I like the fact my wife can't get pregnant. <laughs> yeah, I'm just saying I do, I do nerd out at this. I so it's I like my family. <laughs> I don't have a family just yet. I do have a dog. I've got three dogs as well. It's fine. <laughs> Once again, Connor, you brought that to a new level, and uh, it's appreciated by us lesser folk and just people who are just living their normal lives, not thinking about Dogecoin and Bitcoin and things such as that. So appreciate that. All right, on to squash. So let's go around the room again. Cameron, we'll kick it off with you. What have you seen as sort of the biggest game changers? People or things? For this one, I went people. I've just got two guys, two guys written down. So. Jonathan Power and Rami Ashur. So for me, when I was a junior, just getting serious with my squash and, you know, pulling out the old videos, like VHS cassettes, putting them in, watching sort of roundups of tournament champions, British Opens, World Championships, seeing highlights of power for me was like, when I first saw him, I was like, how cool is this? Like, he's got crazy hair. He was wearing a a bandana with a big M for McDonald's on it, sponsored by McDonald's. I'm like, who do that? that? Like, how good is this? You know, just the flair and just the, like, the Johnny McEnroe squash, basically. So I think he brought brought a different audience and sort of, you know, maybe related to a different crowd and a younger crowd as well. And then Rami, I'd say they're both superstars of the game. I think Rami kind of changed the game a little bit when he when he sort of started coming up and coming through and, he would hit your regular shots, but he'd hit the, those shots at different times. Like, yeah, I know we can see someone lining up a drop shot. All of a sudden, he's hitting a drop a split second earlier or later than than you're expecting it, along with bringing in different shots as well. But I think those two guys, for, you know, similar but slightly different reasons, for me, are, were the game changers for, for squash. And they're two guys that even their peers, all of us, like if one of them were playing someone, like let's say, even well, let's say, Power and Whitey are playing. Us players, we're going to watch that game. We're like, oh, Whitey and Power on at like six o'clock. Like, I'm going to make sure I get some food and then I'm going to go sit there and watch that. And I think Rami did the same where obviously squash fans in general, but the, their peers, like us players, if it was a good match, we're like, okay, we're, I'm going to watch Rami. Like, this is going to be good. For me, it was squash TV before that. I've only been following squash. I think we talked about it in the last episode since about 2002, 2003 ish. 
but looking at video, old videos of you know, like Jahangir Khan and things like that, and even Jonathan Power, the television aspect of it wasn't good enough to make someone who couldn't watch squash in person become a fan. Like you couldn't appreciate the game of squash by watching those videos. It was kind of like, what are they doing? It kind of looks like racquetball. It kind of looks a little tedious at times, but squash TV, you get the slow motion replay. You really see the athleticism and and like how good these players really are. You almost can't get as good an appreciation for it in person on a glass court as you can on squash TV. If you're sitting like at Drexel for the U.S. Open and you're not sitting right on the glass, you don't appreciate how hard that ball's being hit and the lunges that these guys are taking and the retrievals these guys are making. But squash TV, you watch the replays of some of the balls these guys get to. It's just absolutely incredible. So that kind of changed the game for me and made me appreciate the sport as a basically a, a neophyte fan and certainly a neophyte player. The other thing that it was more of a happening and a thing was Trinity College's 252 straight wins kind of brought squash to the mainstream in the United States more so than it had ever been, I believe. And people were always like looking for the streak to be broken. And that was always like, this is the year. This is the team. This team, Williams has a great team this year. Or this team, this, this program has a great team this year. They're going to stop them. Princeton's going to stop them. And for years, it never happened. And it was, it was almost like, you know, when the dog catching the uh, the car, like like he caught the the dog caught the car finally. Trinity got beat and it was like, well, this sucks. Like Trinity, now what? Now there's no interest anymore. Like the streak's over. So mainstream media is not going to cover this. They're not going to say, well, Trinity lost, but God, they're still going to, they're still good. The, the program's still excellent. The intrigue was lost when that streak ended. To me, that was a, a huge moment in squash. It was so awesome when it was happening. It was the talk of on the tip of everybody's tongue who followed squash in the United States anyways. And then once it ended, college squash just became a kind of like a minor sport in the aspect of college sports. There was like, there's no one team out there that people are flocking to see. There's no news coverage of it anymore. Trinity, that, that whole thing kind of stopped that. So to me, that was a pretty big inflection point. I always said, we don't want this to end. You don't want a streak to end because that keeps people interested. So as much as people were anti-Trinity for various reasons, <laughs> be, it, be it whatever they may be, I thought that was not a great thing for squash. John? I've got three, three two quick ones. Were two players, Barada and uh, Nickel. Barada for... Not, I didn't, I didn't get along with Brada. I didn't like the way he played. But when Brada came on the scene, what he did for Egyptian squash, but also what he did for squash globally, and he retired after like I think it was maybe five or six years in the circuit only. Playing him in Egypt, it, it actually brought a different dimension. And it's just like you play him or any other Egyptian boys out there, it was like you know it was hell. But they loved the game and squash. What that brought to Egyptian association and it's just you have a look at the Egyptians now you know who knows if Brada didn't come along years and years ago you know you know then it, it brought up Shabana it brought up Darwish it's, it's got all the players that came behind him for Egyptian squash was huge for squash international and where we are now you just have a look at what is there six Egyptian players on the men's side in the top 10 and you got five Egyptian players I'm not saying Brada was a full and it was all about him but they put all their eggs in one basket when Brada was playing. They wanted a world champion from Brada. They were, wanted a world number one from Brada. And they never got it, probably because of Pete Nichol. But Pete was, you know, just what he did, the, the generations he went through, you know, he's played against, you know, Jansha. And then going through with what Pilly said with, with power, his battles with power and how, you know, how much disrespect power had when he was doing the interview against Nickel about, you know, he was never ever, ever outplayed. It was like always his fault. Nickel was the opposite. He was, you know, his, his sportsmanship on and off the court and just what he did when what he's still doing for the sport is unbelievable. You know, so 
you know, full respect for Pete. You know, he, he lost to World One. He was almost in retirement. He went back with his team. He then come out and beat Palmer to win the what was it, 2006 Commonwealth Games. And before that, he was he was looking to to retire. And they said, you know, come back and play for us. And, you know, let's try and fix your body up. Let's try and do this. And he went all the way through. It was unbelievable for what he's, the, the generations he's come through, the players that he's had to, to deal with. And just like when he went to Egypt, you know, going back between him and Barada, where, you know, you get all the major tournaments in Egypt. Brada could never beat Peter. Peter's mental state against Brada, he would go through anything to to actually beat him. You know, I think that stopped Brada from becoming world champion and becoming world number one. It didn't stop Egypt doing what they wanted for squash, you know, on the back of Brada. You know, those guys, you know, unbelievable for what they did for squash. And then, you know, going on what you said, Bill, with, with the PSA Live, me with technical stuff and everything, I think with the equipment is has got to be the glass court and how involved the glass court has gone. When I first started playing, we had the old perspex courts and the walls would move and the, the perspex, it was almost like sheets of perspex that they would glue onto the actual perspex glass itself. And now from what you see with, you know, the pink lines and the lines that glow now and just what they can do with the glass court that allows PSA Live to set cameras up everywhere and it's, it's unbelievable what you can do and, and how visible it is, especially the way, how quick the game's going and how much of the short game is played. But the cameras can pick it up in the slow motion, you know, that the glass court and where it can actually be put now and how easy it is. And, you know, nearly every single major tournament has their own glass court where it used to be the perspex court would travel everywhere and get busted up where now everyone's investing in a glass court because it's, it's great. It's unbelievable. And that's, that, that helps with you know the tv and everything and, and hopefully the way it's going hopefully we, we can get you know a lot more visibility on, on tv and tv rights or however we can grow this sport and, and get it on tv i believe once it does get on tv and you know we can clean the game up a little bit and it's it's you know hopefully hopefully but i think the glass court is is from what i you know from where i started to where it is now and, and seeing it even more with the different colours and how visible it is, it's great watching on TV, on the internet, through the internet and the PSA Live. Before we jump to Connor, I have a question for you, John, because it, it's always intrigued me about the glass court and especially at, in the college level and a team like yours at Drexel where you guys don't have a glass, you guys don't have a glass court, right, at your facility. Yet your number one player, whomever they may be, is pretty much expected to play on a glass court every match, away match. How do you work that? Like, how do you get someone, hey, look, you're coming to this school, you're going to play number one, we don't have a glass court for you to practice on, but every match you're going to go play the best player from the other team and you're going to have to play it on a glass court that he's been practicing on. It is difficult, but like you play glass court to Trinity, you know, they're completely different because they're in a more of a darker area. There, It's like the two glass courts are in a hall by themselves. So the, the outside lights don't affect the visibility of the ball on court. Like you go to Yale, obviously it's a lovely facility but with all the lights on the outside i've played on the glass court before you have to wear you have to use a black ball trinity you have to use a white ball so it's not just that same glass court you're going to but with my players you know we get there earlier like we either you know if we if it's a weekend match or against you know the top teams that we need to we could do well against we go the night before and i get my top three players who will always play on the glass court i get them to go and have a hit straight away so you go for bus just go and get used to it. You know, you got to you got to track the ball a lot. You know, you know, you got to track it all the time. You have to tra- track it even when you're playing the black ball. But you know, they just got to get used to the bounce, the sound of it, and just how quick it, it sometimes does come off the glass front wall. And then we get down there the next morning, and 
you deal with what you can. My top two, top three guys, you know, they're playing some of the PSA tournaments and they'll travel and they'll, they'll go and play on the glass courts and, and they love it. And once they get used to it and, you know, once you, once you play it on a few times, it doesn't take that long to, to get back used to it. But you've got to still go in there and have a practice. You know, we would love to be able to use and or have our own glass court. Yeah, it is, you know, especially when you go to uh, Harvard. But, you know, when my guys play the number ones from Harvard, it's almost like, don't have fun, fellas. <laughs> good, good coaching. <laughs> when I was first in SM and Trinity would come down, I'm like, Paul, I'm like, why are you coming down to us playing us? He goes, well, we've got Penn, we've got Princeton, we may as well just come and play you. I'm like, yeah, but that's just, he would then, he would probably, most of the time he would throw in his bomb squad, which is, he's like 11 through 20. It's like, I go, even then I go to my players, you know, I'll see you on the bus. Yeah, nice. <laughs> Newt Rockney would be proud of you, John. Well done. <laughs> Connor, what do you got? What do you got for us? A lot of great ones already said. My first one, I also echo that, which is really with the broadcast and just the amount of development that's happened there, I think is really one of the biggest game changers for exposing the sport. The second one, again, me with an eye towards the future, and it's not proven yet whether this will have the mass adaptation that we would want in order to get the success but so early days with the interactive squash which is made by a company in germany fun with balls which is an interesting name but the interactive squash really turns the it changes the court into a fully interactive experience and you could play candy crush or space invaders all the way for you know tracking the top level players of your improving from a soloing perspective so i think that's going to has the potential of really helping to shape and influence the direction of the sport. Then last, I mean, there was a lot. I'm not going to go through my honorable mentions because there's there's too many of them. But I, I'll say who I was torn with, with uh, Jonah Barrington, who really sort of infused the physicality of the sport. I think we can point a lot towards that and what that has done to change a sport. But I'm going to give the edge towards actually an organization of U.S. Squash. I say this a lot on the on the podcast, like I'm I know my sphere and it's very much U.S. focused. You can say maybe there's a bias there, but I, when I look at it, I do think in the past decade, U.S. squash has demonstrated itself to be one of the leading federations from a, a business plan perspective and growth perspective. I think you can point towards other, you know, Egyptian squash from a talent success. I'm going to go with U.S. squash and Kevin Klipstein, who's been at the helm for 17 years. Wow. Hashtag pandering, but that's great. Look, I'm not pandering. Didn't you get fired from U.S. Squash or no? Did I did I misinterpret how you left? <laughs> uh oh, here we go. Let's go. <laughs> I don't know. I I don't know. It's, it's unclear. It's probably an HR violation for talking about. Before we go, we do want to talk about comments from the couch briefly. We Connor and I talk about it uh, not on the podcast, but we do we do give you guys credit a lot of credit because you're we always think in, until this came along you were the best podcast out there for squash. So we're glad that you kind of like John used to hit the ball the fastest and now you do. No, no, we played that up beginning, buddy. We both hit the ball the hardest. This <laughs> one <laughs> besides, and we correct you every single time. <laughs> so, so go fuck yourself, all right? <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, I do have the ability to mute people here, so hold on one second. It's got muted there, good. Okay, so talk to us. Comments from the couch. We're, you're not really muted, by the way. Comments from the couch. How long did you do that for, and you appreciate how hard it is to do this? and how hard it is to produce it and how hard or, it is to put it out there. Are we making this harder than it needs to be? Was it hard? Do Connor and I think it's oh, too hard? It's a piece of piss. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't remember what year or what, what month or what year we, we first started it. I think our last 
episode was 2019, just before I moved over here to the States. I would say maybe maybe around May, maybe like two years ago now was our last one. And we've been talking about like typically like we're like, yeah, we need to get it back going. We need to get up and running. Okay, let's try and let's let's keep in touch. Let's try and do it next month. Two years later. It's like ah, uh, we still haven't got there. But it was so much fun. We'll definitely try and get something going again. But we did it for quite a few years. And even when I'm I used to live in England, but even we'd sort of meet up at a league match or an exhibition or a tournament and we'd have our equipment and we'd go to a you know a conference room or one of the <clears throat> sorry, one of the hotel rooms set up. It was great at tournaments because we could get in a guest. We had players sort of asking, requesting if they could come on. And we we're pretty strict with who we were going to get on. So a few people got rejected. But yeah, it was so much it was so much fun. And obviously we're we're amongst it. We're there talking to the players. We're playing against the players. We sort of, I guess, we were there with Whitey's era to our era to also the, that sort of younger crowd as well. So we had a good mix of players on. But yeah, it was it was good fun. Yeah. And did you find it difficult to get the, like, it got tedious after a while and it was hard to, like, produce it and get it out on the air and edit it? Or, or did you just record it, plugged it in, sent it out there? We were one take wonders, really. <laughs> <laughs> we're being shamed right now, Connor. We are being shamed. To be honest, there wasn't a lot of editing, really. We noticed. We, we, <laughs> we recorded the whole thing in one go, unless there was something at the start or the end that, for whatever reason, was terrible or just didn't fit we'd sort of cut it out but i don't think there was anything in the middle of a show where we're like oh we need to cut that out it was like if you say it on the podcast it's going to air so you know daryl's wife lucy she was in charge of the editing itself putting the music the intro cutting to different segments now we know yeah, why it was so easy for you so, yeah, yeah the talent daryl's better half took care of that so she would then forward that to me and I would be responsible for the uploading, the show descriptions, the notes, episode numbers. I put a bunch up on YouTube because we had a few requests to throw it up on YouTube. Even though it was only a voice recording, they still wanted to listen to it on YouTube. So I did that for a bunch of episodes. I got to say, Lucy was in charge of the editing. So that's why it was pretty easy. There we go. There we go. <laughs> so, and I have to give you credit because I still think it's the gold standard for squash podcasts. I still think it's the best squash podcast that was, that was out there. And I give you credit because the wolf and whatever they call that other one that came afterwards, holy crap, was that bad? Bobby and the wolf or something like that? What a poor effort that was. It almost brought down podcasting, almost ruined squash podcasting for the rest of us. I know. Good thing that got canned. Yeah. 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 In full earnest, you guys really, I think, I know it was like 12, 13 episodes, but the, the most successful podcast that has been around. So that's all all you guys did was 13 total podcasts? So is that we're, what, we're, yeah. Probably we've done more, podcast. Connor? We're, this is 15. So we're now, we're the best podcast, right? No, no. Well, I haven't checked our numbers in, in years. Can you remember the numbers? Huh? Yeah, at some of them, you were getting between 2,000 to 4,000 downloads when you guys started, because it was, it was roughly around when I was starting to back in 2017, and you guys were just like blowing up. So it was easier to get a little bit eyeballs back then, but you guys are still, you know, I think could still reach an audience to really get that. It's the hardest part is is actually getting the word out is the biggest yeah. challenge, right? That re that uh, reach. Yeah. Yeah. As far as I've seen from the metrics I've seen, double, triple everything. So... John White never heard of you. That's crazy. You get a good shout out on a number of episodes. Uh, yeah, yeah. Comments from the couch? Comments from the couch. Fire it up. 
I'm going to have a look and I'm going to go and sit in my uh, recliner with a six pack and I'm going to listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good to me. We'd be excited if you got the band back together. We would look forward to it and having you and Daryl back on again. That would be awesome. So we appreciate it. Connor, any last words? Again, as always, having people we respect and amazing players on the show. So thanks for coming, like both of you guys. It's great to have you guys also stateside. And before you go, John, one last thing, because as a what we call the appendix, which is so named because it used to be called fan follow up, but now it's called the appendix because Connor had his appendix out last week. We are going to end the show with an appendix and we're going to it's a segment we call putting on your PJs and that's starring PJ Squash, Paul Johnson. And in that he is going to tell the story of when he first met you. So you don't have to tell the story, but do you want to refute and do you want to refute anything right now? Because we haven't recorded it yet, so we don't even know what he's going to say. But knowing that, do you want to refute anything that he is going to say? No, nah, it's all true. <laughs> I look forward to this episode. Yeah, is this painting you in a good light or a bad light or not so good light? PJ said it was too long and too convoluted of a story to tell on a squash site website that he was staying on. And I said, come on to the show. I'm going to ping him right after we hang up here and tell him that we're going to have him on for his segment. He's a regular contributor to the show. So it's, it's a story because it's the same as with how I had no idea about Philly's little podcast. He had absolutely no idea who I was and that he was playing me. And he asked me to leave the court. I'm just going to leave that out there. Perfect. I look forward to it. Yes. I look forward to this as well. (laughs) Thanks, guys. Wait, 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 wait. There's more? We are now introducing a new segment here on The Breakdown. It is with a fan favorite, Paul Johnson. Take a listen. Bill, welcome back to the new appendix, formerly known as the fan follow-up. But in the appendix, we get a little bit of latitude on which direction we're going to go. Today, we're going to put on our PJs, which is just a, a, just a great name for a segment. And uh, we're going to bring PJ uh, Squash in, Paul Johnson from Squash TV, to, to kind of uh, amplify a story that uh, John White told us during the podcast. Before we do that, though, I just want to talk a little bit that Cam Pilly and John were excellent. I, I yeah. really appreciated the stories they told about their times on the tour and traveling, talking about uh, hitting the ball harder than any human beings have ever hit a squash ball before. But most of all, I enjoyed uh, Cam talking about uh, Comments from the Couch, his old podcast. I know. Um, that was a great was a great podcast. So before we go down to PJ really quickly, because uh, I know he's busy, he's uh, he's doing the PSA event um, that's happening out in Egypt. He's doing it remotely with Joey. We do have one fan follow-up before we get to Joey, and it's a new listener, Emily from Brooklyn. Um, um, I'm, I'm not quite sure, Connor, this might be a little weird, uh, but I'm just going to read it verbatim what she says. So uh, you take it, take it for what it is. Hi, Bill. Haven't seen you in a long time, but have been listening to you. You are freaking hilarious. I literally laugh out loud listening to you. Say hello to Connor. <laughs> Bill, I thought, I, I thought we talked about this of like writing in your own fan follow-ups. Yeah, I think that sounds like a relative of some kind. I don't know. That was a true email. I laughed so hard when I read it and I sent it to Connor. I said, hey, Connor. Yeah, I, I was joking. It is a verified uh, fan follow-up and uh, much it is appreciated. A real, it a, a real person, a real person. <laughs> so let's get this rolling. So PJ, at the end of the episode with uh, Camp Pilly and yeah. John White, um, I had mentioned to him about something I saw you post online about the first time you ever met John White. And you said it was too long and too good of a story to post uh, on Squash Stories on the internet. And so I said, let's do it on TBD. So here we are. Talk about your first meeting with the uh, the great white shark, John White. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll do my best to do it justice, but it's one of those where you always remember where you were in these iconic moments. And um, 
you know, it's like, where were you when Kennedy got shot or, you know, when the towers went down or whatever it is, it's, you always remember where you were when you met uh, the great John White. And uh, I was in my uh, second year on the PSA World Tour. So I, I'd kind of considered myself a bit of a veteran, really, even though it was only my, my second ever summer tour. I, I did a tour of South America. And because of my previous success the year before, I'd managed to get uh, a top eight seeding in an event in uh, Sao Paulo. We're playing in Sao Paulo in this it really kind of iconic and unique venue, which was in the middle of a like a, a private park in the centre of Sao Paulo uh, town centre, uh, city centre itself. So, I mean, it was, you know, the, the venue itself was absolutely stunning anyway. So um, I'm top eight seed. And I was the first match, uh, my first round match was against a Jay White from Australia. So I'd asked around a few of the other guys on tour if they'd heard of this guy, Joe, you know, Jay White, and, and, and coincidentally, nobody had. And, uh, you know, these tours were kind of funny where players would kind of come and go and disappear and, and never be seen again. So I'm the first match on at midday and I've gone down to the courts around 11.30 in the afternoon just as a bit of a warm-up and a bit of a preparation. And to conserve energy, the the actual court lighting wouldn't come on until midday anyway when, when the matches were going to start. So you couldn't sort of go down and start, you know, warming up and knocking up uh, prior to your match. And uh, about five minutes before my match time, I'm about to step on court and there's this there's this guy uh, who was just sort of whacking balls up and down the forehand side, you know, like six foot two, scrawny, you know, these tiny skinny little legs that literally look like knots in the middle of threads for knees, you know, covered in hair with these really <laughs> big, we call them national health spectacles over here. They're kind of freebies that you get as part of government funding. They were big, ugly brown uh, glasses. <laughs> Around the back of the glasses, he uh, he had the the support just in case they slipped off they we kind of they would still remain around his neck uh kind of thing and he's whacking these balls up and down the forehand side you know giving it a bit of a bit of a, a whack but the swing didn't look particularly pretty so you know no cause for concern i've, I've then knocked on the glass door and i said uh, uh excuse me mate obviously being the senior the elder statesman uh, after just <laughs> two years on tour i said uh I've, we've got a, a pro event going on here and i'm about to start my first round match and uh, he sort of turns around. And he says, "Oh yeah, mate, what's your name?" I said, um, "It's Paul Johnson." Oh, good day, mate. Uh, my name's Johnny White. I think we're playing in the first round. So I've literally looked at him. And I'm thinking, <laughs> I said, "No, no, no. This is this is a, this is a pro tournament. You know, I'm not sure you understand. It's you know, we've got players from all over that are using up the courts now. So you, you're going to have to get off the court if you don't mind." He went, "No, no, no. We're, I'm, I'm playing you in the first round." Bloody. So I'm literally thinking, second year on tour, right? This is a nice few points for the net for my next event. 25 minutes later, I'm two love down, literally breathing out of every orifice. Yeah. Got absolutely <laughs> battered. I had no clue where the ball was going. It was literally the biggest chopping I'd ever experienced for for 25 minutes. Fortunately, those you know those uh, skinny little legs of his couldn't carry him through the finishing line. And uh, managed to grind it out in about an hour and forty-five minutes, but uh, and that was literally my, my first meeting of, uh, of the Great White. It was, uh, it was. I will never ever forget that experience. It was unbelievable. Did he let you forget it? Did he remind you of this uh, when you guys continued on the tour for years? Is that, that did he no, bring this up all the time? Because for him, it, it just didn't mean any. It didn't mean anything. It was just another game of squash, as far as he was concerned. You know, but whereas. 
uh, for me, uh, being a top eight seed and, you know, as I said, a couple of years on tour, your, your class is a bit more senior. He may remember from me rec- recalling the story to him, but as far as him remembering the actual event itself, I'd I'd be quite surprised uh if he has any he remembered in our podcast he he said that he and actually if it weren't for the time of day we would um we, we would have had him on as a special guest but we kind of did this uh trying to throw this together last minute so we couldn't get him on he said he wants to get on and talk to you about it personally so we may have to arrange <laughs> I, I that at some point he's kind of taken it because uh <laughs> so, it was it was an unbelievable experience be a good way to set the record straight so we had him on and he's obviously set a world record for hitting yep. the ball so hard what was that like experiencing that ball coming at you? Johnny, I mean, I absolutely love playing Johnny because he he just played the game in the right manner. He was extremely fair. He was tough. Um, you know, he's he, he doesn't particularly look it, but he's a very strong, uh, very strong guy. Physically, he's very strong. He did a few martial arts as a kid, so he, he can certainly handle himself. But we just, there was a mutual respect between us and it was a, a match where... It was a real game of cat and mouse because John White, whoever he played against, it was a little. He played very similar to Brett Martin, where you, you never really felt in control of the rallies. You were always relying on trying to break him mentally, as opposed to outplaying him or or breaking him down physically. So, so that was always the challenge that I enjoyed against uh, Johnny. Um, he could hit certain shots on both sides, forehand and backhand, very, very similar again to Brett Martin, where they would hit it so hard and so flat that you didn't even see it. Now, that sounds quite hard to imagine, but you, because the pace they generated and the, the ball would, would flatten so much on the front wall, it almost didn't bounce back off the front wall. It got stunned and stayed so short that it was a completely different flight to what you were used to. So, you know, at times he played stuff where you were just in complete awe and, and had to hold your hands up and accept the fact that you'd been outclassed and outplayed. Um, but you also knew that there was that that vulnerable side to him losing a bit of concentration and he, he would break his, his his mindset. And that was kind of always the challenge that I enjoyed with Johnny. But we had some great battles over the years. Um, I think he has the edge. I'm not quite sure. But, you know, it was tight. and But always a really well-enjoyed tear-up between the pair of us. Your description of him on court before you saw when you saw him hitting the ball with his glasses and basically looking like, I don't know if you're familiar with the movie White Man Can't Jump. You look like Billy Hoyle out there and then Woody Harrelson and he becomes like a a superstar. I've often wished that I was good at anything at all. that I could then dress down and then be good at it later. I could do the dress down part for sure, but then I could never be good at it. So it's kind of, I only got half the equation. So it sounds like he had, he had the whole equation. I wonder if it was purposeful on his part a little bit, knowing that he was uh, not well known on the tour. Um, let quick last question before we let you go. Uh, John claims because he could hit the backhand harder than anyone could hit the backhand. He still holds part of the world record for speed and Pilly uh, just owns the forehand record. What are your I'd comments agree. on that? I'd agree. I think um, what I used to love watching about Johnny White is he he could generate so much power, but he just had such a natural understanding of body mechanics and how to generate power just through a natural flow of the swing. He wasn't one of those players. It's a little bit like when you watch some of the great golfers, you know, your Rory McIlroy's, they don't look like they're swinging at it, you know, a hundred percent. It's always kind of hit within uh, an element of control. And that was the kind of power that Johnny White could 
generate. It was never, it was always effortless. And I think on that backhand side, as I said to you at the beginning there, with, with he and Brett Martin, they both had that ability to stun and kill the ball, both forehand and backhand sides. And I would be surprised if there's a backhand out there that is as well struck and as pure as Johnny White's. Uh, I would have to agree with that on that I understand, but does it still count as a world record just because you're hitting it a different way? Either way, the record's what as fast as you can hit the ball, not how you yeah. hit it, right? I, so is it, yeah, is it a world it record? Me. Yeah, okay. I think whatever way you look at Okay, it. all right. Yeah, once I think again. 100%. I mean, if he could generate more speed on his backhand and was the fastest one, it would still be the fastest, but there's forehand and backhand. All right, sure. you guys, you guys, it's like, oh, I could throw, I could throw the ball farthest left-handed and then I could throw the ball farthest right-handed. So both are world records. That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Amen. One more very quick um, story. One more very quick story. And sure. hopefully Johnny still remembers this as well. It was actually the same tour. So we'd come towards the end of the week. Uh, the tournament was over and the players have had a couple of days in between events. So we were all down the club. Uh, this same particular club in, in Sao Paulo. And John being John, uh, uh, you know, made himself um, very welcome amongst the other players, should I say. And he settled right in straight away. He was a, he was a great lad and he loved a good time both on and off the court. And um, at the end of the tournament, I'm sitting there with uh, Paul Gregory. Uh, Johnny White was sitting there. Martin Heath was also, um, he was still kind of, he was doing a bit of solo practice on court, practicing, getting ready for the next event. We were just sitting there playing a little bit of out, outdoor backgammon and John, we were all having a few beers to celebrate the end of that particular week. Anyway, Martin Heath came out and he was quite keen to get some more match play in before the upcoming tournament. And he came over, we sat down, we, you know, well, you know, wherever we were having a few pops and he sort of asked us all if we wanted a, a you know, a match before that, that next event. And I declined, Paul Gregory declined. Um, and then Martin Heath started to give Johnny White a little bit of stick. So, you know, and John said, I've had, you know, I've had a couple of beers, you know, I don't want to beat you after having a, a few, a few pops, you know, it wouldn't be too good for your confidence kind of thing. So anyway, a little bit of banter has gone back and forth between Johnny White and Martin Heath. In the end, Johnny White's accepted the offer. Johnny's probably about four or five beers in at this stage. Sticks his, <laughs> sticks his squash sneakers on, puts his glasses around his neck. Goes on court, chops Heathy up in about 35 minutes, comes back, sits down, carries on drinking from where he left off. <laughs> Heathy was absolutely mortified. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, again, that was just another typical Johnny White, regardless. <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's an that's awesome story so lastly before we let you go you're back on the mic at the um the uh, psa world finals you're doing it remotely with joey how does it feel to be back behind the mic uh back with joey any uh, missteps you, you slide right in the mic. uh it's difficult to put into words bill really um i'd forgotten how much i'd missed it until literally the first match started lee beach did me a huge favor i couldn't actually get down for the first round uh, beach was covered in um he's full of allergic reaction to hay he's, he's got hay fever so he was struggling but i've said this to you guys before for me to be sitting there commentating on watching the best players in the world having a chat with one of my best pals about it um is as good as it can possibly get for me without actually competing you know obviously if i had a choice i'd be back out there playing but it is the next best thing you still feel very much part of the tour you're still seeing the game at the highest level and to be able to try our best to educate all different standards and levels with your best pal is it's 
It's awesome. It's absolutely brilliant. And I can't emphasize that enough, really. You know, Joey's great. He's always entertaining. And we have a real blast doing it. And, and I'm just happy to be back out there. I'm glad the tour's still up and running. And, you know, the guys over at CIB in Egypt are keeping the tour afloat at the moment. So we've got a massive to them so it's all good it's all good that's awesome it's so much fun to watch and uh so much fun to listen to you too so welcome back it's a treat for all of us fans for sure so we appreciate you doing this we know you have a busy day ahead so good luck and have fun and tell tell your uh broadcast mate we're still hunting him down and someday we'll have him on if his internet uh and tell him if he needs us to send him like some money to improve the internet at his house um yeah, we could do well, that so. accept the money whether we'll uh, upgrade the internet or not i'm not sure that may go towards some plants or something i don't know you never know with barrington i appreciate it thanks thanks for being on we appreciate it hey quick time out to hear a word from our sponsor bias sports shoes are designed for racket sport players by racket sports players with the knowledge that if a shoe can withstand the rigors of squash then it will have no problem holding up for any other indoor court sport no matter what your sport the bia force x is the performance shoe of choice for competition at the highest level so it would mean a lot if you go to biasports.us. That's B-I-A sports with an S dot U-S. Check out their website. But even better, take their new Bia Force X for a test drive.